Hi there, I'm Dan Jones, and this is my podcast, Climate Scientist. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK. And on this podcast, I have long conversations with folks whose work intersects with climate in some way. Coming up is my conversation with Michael White. Michael White is a climate science editor for Nature magazine. He has an academic background. He was a professor for a while. And as we talk about in the conversation that's coming up, he made a transition from academia into full-time publishing. That became his full-time thing. It was really great to sit down and talk with Michael. I enjoyed this conversation a lot. We met in uh, Christine Lane's office at the University of Cambridge show. Thank you, Christine, for lending us your office, for letting us uh, sit in there for a bit, your, one of your workspaces, so we could record this conversation. Michael also, for a long while, had a science podcast where he interviewed you know, people who were doing climate science and uh, kind of roles that are related to that. And uh, so you can check those out. He's not doing them anymore, but go to forecastpod.org, forecastpod.org, and you can find all of the, there's a big back catalog of episodes that uh, you can listen to there. And uh, I believe you can also download them on iTunes and whatnot. And also in Forecast Pod, you can read a little bit more about Michael's background. He's got a bit of a, a mini biography there that you can dig into. Great. Okay. I'm going to keep the intro really short today. Nice. Uh, well, short for me. Sometimes I go on a little bit, you know, I read an article or I do something, but uh, I'm just going to get right into it. So thanks again to Michael for carving out some time and uh, to, to have a conversation. And thanks to Christine Lane for letting us use your office and lab space. Very much appreciated. So I hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Michael White. Oh, at MW Climate Sci on Twitter. You can find him there. Now, here we go. We get stuck. Mm. See you in the morning then. Yeah, we'll, have a, we'll have a paper. Mm. There'll be cannibalism, right? Yeah. There'll be stress. Yeah. We'll find one of them back if they can't. It could be. Yeah, the way. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good luck. Have Thanks. Fun. Thank you. Right, Stuart, Thanks. Shall I leave this? Uh, I guess closed and it'll be still forward to that. Thank you, Christine. Okay, Bye. Cool. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for reaching out. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad that the uh, kind of opportunity presented itself, and I'll. Um, I'm not going to stare at this thing the whole time, but I'll glance over every now and then because oh, I, sure. I did have an instance where it just crashed on me at one during one interview, um, and that was back before I really kind of huh? had my eye. So every now and then I'm going to glance over. And it's always nerve wracking. Like something always went wrong. Almost always went wrong. Yeah. Recording. Like in terms of the audio or the just something. The audio quality, or, or you know, the person didn't have their external mic turned on, or something like that. Because I did them all re- almost all remotely. Oh, you did it remotely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It was. How did you do that? Automatic. Um, usually, I would have them record on Audacity locally. Okay. And I would record my end locally, and then they would send me the WAV file, and then oh. I would merge it together. Okay. Yeah. I did it occasionally through Skype in a Skype recorder, but the audio quality was pretty bad. Okay. Right. But you're doing There's... something else. You mentioned there's some other kind of program that you're using yeah, for that. Yeah. I've been using Anchor. And, Anchor. Okay. Um, that's, uh, up until the last episode, I'd just been using them to using Anchor to distribute because you can upload the episode and they handle the distribution and they put it all on iTunes and oh. Google Play and um, a bunch of others that I'd never heard of before until you know oh, wow. Anchor started doing the distribution. Okay, I didn't um, realize that. And these days you can do the recording on the app. 
Hmm. So actually, you can record remotely, and I, I just recorded one of the previous one with um, um, with, with uh, Sam Ellingworth, who's a science communication professor. Uh-huh. We just couldn't get our schedules to work out, so we said, "Okay, let's try the anchor recording, the audio recording remotely." And it worked. And it worked really nicely, wow. actually. Like the um, the audio quality came out like kind of. It sounds like a phone call, but it sounds like a reasonably clear phone call. Okay. You know, <laughs> so that's that's a good way to do it. But doing them remotely, I imagine, makes the scheduling much easier because you just need to find you know yeah, some little time. Yeah, it did, and. and you know, people do come through the Bay Area a lot, obviously, but it was just so much easier to get people to do it. Yeah. Remotely, but it is better to do it in person. I think so. I think I think I'm going to have to think about more remotely, uh, more remote interviews though, because I've I've pretty much run through my li- my list of like people who are really excited to do it. Like like Christine was on board, and she's like, yeah, yeah let's do it. Uh-huh. I think I've gone through them all in Cambridge, <laughs> and now into the folks who are like a bit more reluctant to like I don't know what are you talking about? Mm. What is it? Like they know what a podcast is, but they kind of just feel for, for, for whatever reason they feel yeah. uh, reserved about it, and I, I think people are worried about. I'm saying the wrong thing, but oh, for sure, um, yeah, which which is understandable. But at the same time, you know, when you're trying to do something that's more more conversational, I think you know, listeners give you some leeway, and they totally. under, yeah. they understand if you don't say something that's 100, percent you know, that you maybe want to put an asterisk on. Yeah, they, they understand yeah. if yeah. it's if if you're a little more general and mm-hmm. a little broader. Um, yeah. So uh, thanks again. I'm I'm glad that you were here. I'm glad we were able to to do this. Me too. So. Uh, um, so you're in town for the VIX meeting, the volcanic impact. I am. Yeah, how's that been? How's that been going so far? It's a really intriguing meeting because it's bringing together people from the physical climate science, so ice core research, primarily the tree ring community, and then a whole bunch of historians who are looking at things like the Icelandic sagas, for example. Yeah. Or a wide variety of documentary evidence that you typically don't see in physical climate science meetings. Hmm. Yeah, the when we just got out of this public lecture where you know it was um, a whole story that goes from the physics of the volcano, you know, the physics of what drives right, the volcano, right. the earth science, all the way up to uh, oh the the famines and the uh, the, the social breakdown that it mm-hmm. can lead to in, in small scales and. Um, and I liked that the, the you know the archaeologists can end their project with a museum exhibit that can be their outreach. <laughs> you know, like when you write a grant, you're you're kind of expected to write. Yeah, like, what are you going to do? Typically, physical science kind of things. That's great. Not as much, right? <laughs> or you've got a math project. Oh, we should. Probably right. We should do more. I like that. So the, the problem that we typically have with papers in Nature that are at the kind of interface of uh, climate and society is that you have one part of it being really strong. For example speleothium geochemistry for example hmm. and then a fairly limited effort to actually try and explain how that kind of climate variability would have impacted human society mm-hmm. and what i really liked about felix rita is it rita or red i'm not sure how to pronounce his last name was he was very granular about the ways that eruptions are are different than climate perturbations hmm. in terms of how they would affect your tooth wear and your respiratory function, your mental health, things yeah. like that, in, yeah. in ways that you don't usually think about. I think physical scientists want to usually think about how it would affect climate in terms of cooling or change to rainfall patterns and things like that. But there are a lot of other ways that make volcanic eruptions different than climate disruptions. Yeah, definitely. The tooth wear part I thought was really interesting, how he mentioned that oh, they, went, yeah. they went across the street to the material science department and said, can we, you know, take some <laughs> artificial teeth and clamp down on different size hardness particles to see what it affects? Yeah, the toxic levels of fluoride. Yeah. 
that's just that's not something I think about in my kind of day to day job. You know, it's heat, heat and carbon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there was also a reference that Clive made to their uh, work with a what shooting up um, pork car- carcasses or something, yeah. something like that. I'm not familiar with the word. Yeah, but shooting pork not, carcasses to, sounds like something on MythBusters. You know, they like they wanted to test. Yeah, totally. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So you're you're um, from what I can tell on from your web kind of presence like you so your primary role seems to be as an editor for nature yes is that right yeah so that's your that is your my main, primary role main job i'm an editor for the physical climate sciences at nature so anything where the main conclusion is on atmospheric sciences or oceanography cryosphere a lot of the things that are being done at bass would fall under my remit at yeah. nature so it's done by topic area, not by methodology. So if the main mm. method is climate, but it's actually about impact on polar ecosystems, then it would go to the ecology editor. So we have about one editor per domain area. And in reality, we work together quite a lot. Yeah. Me with the editor for ecology and for biogeochemistry and for human evolution and things like that. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So that job entails, I'm guessing... Um, I mean, you, you get lots of papers coming in, and, and so you have to decide. I guess the first decision is, do, do I send this out to review or not? Right. You know, what kind of goes through your head when you're making that, that analysis, you know, when you're kind of deciding yeah. what to send out? We, we get about, I mean, it varies by editor. So the editor for ecology gets about, I think, 600 papers per year. I get about 400. Mm. So for me, it's about, on average, you know, seven or eight per week, yeah, which is a, it's a, it's a manageable load. It is a, a crushing load, which yeah. means that I have time to come to meetings like this, for yeah. example. But you're right. So when a paper comes in, we, we read it. There's no one else besides the editors making the initial judgment about whether to have it reviewed or not. And in, in many cases, when I first began the job, I would get a paper and it would literally be the first time I had ever heard about that topic in my entire oh, life. Yeah. Because I have a a background in ecological modeling and remote sensing and, to some degree, climatology and climate impacts, but I'm not a a pure climate scientist by Mm. any means. And so you have a very limited amount of time to kind of get up to speed on any given topic, like maybe a day maximum for a particular topic. It's not a lot of time. But now I've been doing it for 11 years, so you have a pretty good sense of when the topic is going to be within our wheelhouse or not. And a lot of papers... Not a lot, but many, you can read, skim them, in about five minutes you'll know that it's a complete non-starter for nature. Not because it's a bad paper or bad research, it's just a bad match for our editorial interest. Okay, what would you say that is if you were trying to summarize it, your editorial Well, our standard uh, (laughs) description is that we want work that is uh, novel and important. Yeah. And those are essentially editorial judgments. That's why we have editors to make that judgment. And it's always the case that almost no work in geosciences is is really novel. It all derives from Mm. from prior research. So like what is novel is itself an editorial judgment. It's not a binary classification at all. Right. It's like a neuron that fires. Yeah. yeah. There's a a threshold over which you have to get to fire this neuron. (laughs) I mean, some papers fire your neurons instantaneously and you know right away Mm. you're going to have this paper sent out to review but a lot of them are in a in a very gray area and then we weigh a lot of other factors either intentionally or not but you're thinking about does the paper translate beyond a very localized research Mm. domain so for example i had a paper by uh, robin bell and uh, others from lamont and they were looking at 
this idea that in the, the Nansen Ice Shelf, we have the potential for a surface water river to evacuate meltwater in a way that would actually preserve the ice sheet and it shelf. Sorry. And I do, it, I do that all the and time. It, yeah. <laughs> and that it, it may have been going on for you know, well over 100 years, more or less permanently. Yeah. yeah. And that was a case in which I got the paper and I had never seen that before. So to me, it was, mm. it was, that, I think it was a novel demonstration for this duration of analysis. It was mechanistically intriguing because the main idea is that surface water getting into crevasses could lead to hydrofracturing, for example, and destabilize ice shells. But they were showing that in certain conditions would have a, a preservative effect in, mm. in essence. But it was only for one system. So okay. there was no real insight into why it happened there, not other locations, how right. general was the mechanism. So mm. if things were really novel and mechanistically compelling, we're probably more willing to take on a more geographically limited data set. Right. Okay. So it was a mechanism that hadn't been explored very thoroughly before, yeah. even though it had possibly just a geographically limited you know, relevance in that, in that exactly. region. Exactly. So you either need something like that, or you need something that connects to a lot of other different systems, because I guess you're assuming that you know, nature will get read by a pretty broad right. variety of scientists, and you want to catch their interest, mm -hmm. you want to you, know, you want to have that article latch into as many different fields as as is feasible, I guess, or as, as, as I, I think that's sense. where we're we're strongest. I think nature exists to communicate across sciences. It's a very old style of journal. Most journals now are disciplinary, so they're about mm. physical oceanography or ecology. There are not many journals out there. Us, science, uh, PNES, or a few of them that communicate across all fields of science. And so to the degree that we can bring in other fields, I think we're, we're stronger for it. In reality, most papers in nature are, are fairly disciplinary. Mm -hmm. But even yeah. within that category, there are papers that have a very clear, broader interest. So for example, a paper we published last summer, again on Antarctica, but covering all of Antarctica was this MB2 analysis, this ice sheet mass balance intercomparison exercise. Uh, version 2, version 1 was in science. And version 2 showed that from three different methods, which are independent methods, and the mass loss from it, the Antarctic ice sheet is accelerating. Mm. And given how much ice there is there now, it's an alarming kind of conclusion that I think pretty much any kind of general reader can can appreciate, right. even though it didn't right. it didn't reach into, for example, the... <clears throat> Sorry, the ecological implications of those kind of changes. Hmm. Okay, yeah. So it had that, that particular impact was you know big and it connected connected to many yeah. different fields. And, yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, and that, that makes sense that you would look for those things that have that kind of broad outreach. And I guess you know I'm uh, if you don't want to engage with this particular question, it's totally okay. <laughs> uh, I totally understand. But I'm thinking of once hearing this isn't me. I'm, I'm not making up a proxy for for my own <laughs> argument. This is really somebody I heard. So You're not a, asking for a, a friend. <laughs> no, no. So it was a more uh, a more senior uh -huh. scientist who was kind of um, grumbling a little bit and saying like, um, and I'm sure you've you've heard or thought about this area of criticism mm -hmm. before where he was grumbling a bit and saying like, well, you know, they just want splashy things and you should publish in the, he called it the proper press. <laughs> <laughs> I like, mean, a variant uh, on that comment is that uh, uh, just because it's a nature doesn't mean that it's wrong or, or things like that. Um, <laughs> I would say that that's not the case for making editorial choices. Um, we recognize that papers can have major implications for press coverage, but mm. in many cases, 
hopefully in all cases, we're making judgments about what to have reviewed and how to handle the review based on the scientific interest in the paper. Yeah. So yeah. for example, I have published papers on volcanic mesocyclones many, many years ago. Very specialist, but we felt that the atmospheric dynamics and the meteorology were quite intriguing, and mm. we published it. It's been cited, I think, three times. <laughs> yeah. I had uh, two papers that I published mm. on the spiral troughs of the northern polar layer deposits on Mars about mm. their formation mechanisms and their possible uh, changes over time. Cited very, very little, but I don't regret publishing those yeah. papers yeah. at all. So I would never have a paper sent to review because I thought it would get a lot mm. of attention. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I really, I'm really glad that you brought that point up because, um, you know, on the other side of that, if you're a person who's published a paper, like I've got, a, I've got a couple of papers that I'm still legitimately proud of. And I'm like, I'm glad I did that. <laughs> the one that I have in mind that I'm really glad I did only has one citation, but I'm like, yeah, same it's, here. it's fine. It's okay. I, I still like that paper. I still, like I, I never knew which of my papers were going to be heavily cited or not. No, I would no. just sort of do them and publish them. And then Sometimes you're like, what happened to that paper? And like, what? That was amazing. Yeah. Didn't see that coming. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's just um, a friend of mine was telling me about, and he did a remote sensing paper early in his career, and he he worked hard on it, but it was just the perfect right place and right time. Right. And he's like, now it has 4,000 citations or something yeah. ridiculous because I just happened to do this thing that needed to be done, and I just happened to be the person who, who did it. And that's a good point about, about right place, right time, because there, there, I mean, there are fields that I've handled in nature that I wouldn't say they've come and gone, but they've, they've come and have perhaps made their point for our audience. So okay. I think one of those is um, subglacial hydrology, for yeah. example. So Jay Zwall had a paper in Science many years ago with the idea that you could have meltwater acceleration of the of ice sheets and, and glaciers, and then that spurred a, a huge amount of work on trying to understand how meltwater affected glacial velocity. And it ends up functioning kind of like alpine glaciers with the net impact that over the annual time scale, there's sort of very little speed up yeah. from increased meltwater delivery. But we published things on like borehole evidence of um, conduit connection to the basal conditions. We published work on lake drainages, um, fern buffering capacity, things like this, mm. that I think the function of that hopefully was to raise the issue that subglacial hydrology is, is important to consider and it may have important implications but I haven't published nearly as much as I did uh, five years ago on, mm. on that topic. So you feel like that it's time to make a particular comment kind of came and, and went and it could still make contributions, yeah. but in terms of, you know, the, the, Hey, here's something that we're not paying attention to. Right. Somebody exactly. pay attention to I, mean, I think that the way that. that it works is that you can have these papers come in that make, like I was saying before, like fairly limited mechanistic advances at a particular site or network of sites. And then, after that point is being made, then our interest will kind of transition into the broader implications. Like, what does that mean for the overall ice sheet function yeah. at this point from subglacial hydrology? And it's, you know, it's that's, a, that's a more challenging question, I think, to kind of scale it up. So our interest often will transition from very specific mechanisms to the broader implications over, over time. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, because um, I think you're in a really unique position you know, editors, and especially like somebody like yourself, who that's your full-time job. So that gives you a really nice view of the literature as a whole. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think a lot of researchers like myself, it's even hard for us sometimes to keep up with, you know, just what's going on in our field in yeah, terms right, of like, because there's, right. there's so much, there's a high volume. So given that, um, 
I'm sure you notice trends, you notice patterns, mm-hmm. and you know, are there any kind of trends and patterns you've noticed in terms of what what people have been interested in these days? And you know, moving on into the future, do you see any potential uh, trends? Are there any? Are we likely? Um, one one fun question to talk about is: uh, Do you expect kind of our field generally, broadly, climate science, to have any more big revolutions, or is it going to be a a, a story of you know, small increments, small mm-hmm. adjustments, of small refinements to our to our knowledge? Or do you see any yeah. potential for everything to kind of blow blow open and, <laughs> and change in a big way? I'll try to answer the first one. Yeah. One example that that really comes to mind is the interface of the solid earth science and sea level rise, hmm. particularly in the paleoclimate realm. Like so rebound of continents and yeah, that exactly. sort of thing. I, I think this community has largely evolved in isolation. So there were people doing work on corals, for example, that were showing really eye-popping changes in sea level during past interglacials, like, you know, 20 meters from Barbados and things like this. Hmm. But the the solid earth community, um, you know, people like Jerry Mitrobica and his wide network of colleagues are, are showing, I think, that pretty much all indicators of past sea level variability are heavily impacted by, like what you're saying, the movement of the, mm. of the solid earth uh, transfer of lithospheric mass and things like that, uh, three-dimensional topography changes, which makes the interpretation of these kind of paleo sea level proxies really, really challenging. And so when you have an ice sheet modeler who's trying to provide constraints for her model, how do you constrain it? I mean, is, is there a valid constraint from the Pliocene warm period, mm. for example? Um, some people would argue yes. Some people would say we can't even rule out zero. <laughs> um, mm. I'm talking to like Andrea Dutton, who would say that we don't even have an upper limit on sea level rise during the last interglacial 120,000 years ago. So the, the, the geological constraints are, are pretty weak. Hmm. for ice sheet model development. Yet, ice sheet models are the ones that are critical to try and understand loss of mass from Antarctica, for example. Yeah. yeah. So that that interaction, I think, is really interesting. And I think that the, the two communities, perhaps to some degree, have been kind of unaware of the, the magnitude of the issues that were involved. On the flip side, on the geochemical side, I think that maybe the the geological community hadn't appreciated the huge range of nuances that are in the coral data or the, the other um, proxies of sea level rise. Mm. So I think there's been a really useful coming together of those um, mm. communities. Had there been more kind of meetings, in, you know, meetings across yeah, those there lines? Yeah, and... there was a meeting in Lamont, I mean, uh, Columbia, um, I think summer of 2017, where I think a lot of people really began to realize that this was perhaps a, a bigger issue than than they had thought. Hmm. And then with um, submissions that I've been seeing, you're, you're really seeing people paying a lot more attention to this and reviewers paying a lot more attention to this. Mm. That's really interesting. Yeah, so these interdisciplinary boundaries, you know, th- that that's, there's a lot of potential juice <laughs> there, yeah. you know, of, and is that something, no, do, would you care to hazard a guess? Do you, <laughs> do you see any other potential, you know, boundaries between fields that maybe haven't been as, as joined up as they could be where we might well, see some potential? One of them, I think, really is getting back to this, this, this VIX meeting and the interaction of climate science and society. Mm. And one mm. area yeah. where... We've been entering in a very kind of guarded way has been uh, climate economics. Hmm. And we published a paper by uh, Marshall Brook and colleagues back in 2015 
proposing a following work by Melissa Dell and her colleagues that there's a very, very large impact of climate change on the economy. Yes. Yeah. On the order of like 20% negative hit. Hmm. And we've published... Um, in, this, in the case where you just let climate change... Exactly, like RCP 8.5, something like that. 20% roughly economic... To hit, GDP. Bit, yeah. At 2100. Yeah. So I mean, that's, that's an enormous change. But, I mean, that, that work proved to be uh, controversial and... I mean, just as an aside, we don't. While we don't ever publish work to be to be controversial, we don't view being controversial as a problem mm-hmm. per se. Mm-hmm. Obviously, fraudulent work is a problem, but that was never the case with these papers. And then we began to, or I began to go to economics meetings to try and figure out what what they care about. Yeah. And uh, meeting economists, and what you learn about economists, first of all, is that they, many of them, uh, have have no use for nature or science or journals like ours, hmm. because there's a a professional disincentive to publish in journals like Nature. It's viewed as being not robust, rigorous work for oh, economics, really? and you might have a oh wow, you might have a negative hit in promotion and tenure for having published in, in Nature. Wow, I had no M- idea. Many departments would have you know you would get zero credit. You need to publish in the best five journals in economics, essentially, and the field is heavily theoretical. So your typical mm. professional recognition would come from theoretical development, not from quantitative evidence-based work, mm. but there's a, a group of um, heretical economists that are beginning to do this, and they're interested in communicating to um, a broader audience, heretical. which for us is great. It's like, yeah. it's amazing. Like if, if you're talking about things like how would climate change affect agricultural productivity, or it also extends into human welfare, um, mortality, we had a paper about indoor air quality and, and mortality, but mm. a lot of it's been about Economists working with climate scientists to try to understand the the impacts of, of El Nino on conflict, for example. There's been a lot of work on climate and conflict. It's been extremely controversial, hmm. but also from our point of view, incredibly interesting. And what's nice about that community is they are economists who are really trying hard to bring data into the equation in a way that hadn't been done hmm. historically in economics. So I see that it's like a really really interesting, um, but also editorially challenging. Field because like none of us are economists, right? Yeah, at Nature yeah. we we have a history of being a natural science journal, not doing sociology. So papers come in on economics and it'll go to one of three or four editors, and we try very hard to assign good reviewers for the papers. But mm. it's a case where we may not be aware of major divisions within the field, which is why we go to meetings. This is why we go and talk to scientists. Why we reach out to economics. And to economists to try and figure out like what are the what are the main issues yeah. here? What should we be worried about? Who are the good reviewers? Things like that. So it's really interesting editorially to have these new areas open up like that. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah. So because you, you wouldn't necessarily want to send a heretical paper to the um, orthodoxy. <laughs> for right. So I, I wouldn't. I little... wouldn't send a, a, a quantitative database paper uh, to a theoretical economist. So for example, um, Angus Deaton, who's a Nobel winning uh, prize, Nobel Prize winning economist and his co-author whose name I forget published the, the first work in, in PNAS showing this reduction in life expectancy in middle-aged white Americans. Right. Yeah, I've heard of that. Result. Several years yeah. ago. Block, blockbuster result. <laughs> and I haven't talked to Deaton about this but what I heard is that he didn't even submit it to an econ journal because they had no theory. Oh, wow. 
It was just the quantification. <laughs> and like, we're okay, we're fine. It's just a quantification of an amazing finding. We're good with that. Yeah. But economists were not. That's so bizarre. But that was that was like the starting point of the idea that there's an opioid academic that's actually reducing life expectancy in the US. Yeah. So there's like there's a space for us to publish that kind of work, I think, in places like science and nature and these other kind of high profile journals that are not pure mm. economics. That's and I think the field is kind of gradually thinking maybe we should try to communicate to people who are not just our colleagues in economics. We really do have something to say about the broader interaction of science, climate science, and society. Yeah, absolutely. There's a new, um, I, I don't know to what extent, like economists have been involved, but here in Cambridge, there's a new center for doctoral training on um, artificial intelligence and environmental risk. So it's, oh, wow. okay. um, you know, reducing flood risk and storm risk and trying to quantify these sort yeah. of impacts and to, trying to use, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning to um, come up with ways to quantify that risk and to think of you know ways to to reduce it, and mm-hmm. that sounds like an obvious place where economists could be could be involved. And yeah. I, I haven't been directly involved in that effort, so I don't know how I don't know how joined up they yeah, are. I don't that. know if they're doing a lot of AI machine learning in economics. They, I might just not be aware of it, but it's definitely mm. happening across all fields of nature. Yeah, in the natural sciences, and yeah. we, I think for a while we had an appetite for papers that were writing about or talking about the overall applicability of those kind of techniques for whatever topic it might be. Marcus Reichstein had one that we published maybe two months ago about this for Earth sciences in particular. Mm -hmm. But I think now we'll be looking at scientifically compelling results from that method. So I think the methodological discussion part of it has passed hmm. for us, and now we'd be moving into the application and insights that would arise from it. Right. Oh, yeah, I think I saw that. It was, was the Reichstein paper. Was that the one that had it had a few really nice tables about uh, here's the analysis problem, and here's the one column was the traditional method, right, right. and then the other column was oh, here's the machine learning method. Exactly. That, that is so helpful because that gives us, you know, folks who are f- more familiar with like, you know, EOF analysis or some sure, statistical sure. thing like that, to, to for us to learn what the machine learning. <laughs> you know, I'm glad it was. I'm glad it was useful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a, the other kind of AI thing that's happening. Um, it's been written about in, in in science, but I've had a lot of discussions with people about this, is whether or not people are going to or or should be using AI to uh, replace GCMs or parts of GCMs. Right, yeah, yeah. So Tapio Schneider has funding from uh, Vulcan. He's at Caltech. It's the late Paul Allen Foundation to develop, as I understand it, a, a new GCM, a substantial portion of which will be an AI approach to do cloud processes. Right, yeah. To get around yeah. the issue of cloud parameterization and then just to train um, a neural network on, I believe, the satellite record and then use that as a, a workaround, mm-hmm. a potentially more robust workaround. And the, the argument against that, of course, is that you have no physical insight. Right. Yeah. You don't know yeah. if that training will work in a different climate or different situation. Yes. And I think that, that debate about the AI approach versus the physical approach is, is ongoing. Yeah. Which is great for us, too. Editorial, it's also really interesting. Yeah. I mean, you brought up the big points right there. That's, um, I talked with Laura Zana, who um, uh, there's this 
Bolton and Zana paper that we talked about where they used a uh, neural network to um, parameterize subgrid scale momentum forcing uh-huh. in, a, in a numerical model. Okay. And, and they showed that it worked, but they also showed that it, the training region really, really matters. Like you're saying, like where yeah. you train the neural network, if you train it in a boring region, then it's not going to do very well because it's only ever seen boring things. It will <laughs> give you boring results. So, I, uh, the other candidates that I know about are submusal scale eddies in the ocean. Right. For yeah. example, yeah, yeah. So that, that's an on, like you said, that's an ongoing kind of active, active sort of thing. Um, well, I want to, I want to kind of be mindful of your time because I know you, you've got to go to London, right? And you're going. I'm not this, going this to the movie, so, so I probably have you know, a little bit know, more time. A little bit yeah. more. Yeah, yeah. So you know, there's this, um, the Extinction Rebellion kind of demonstrations have been taking place in London today, and they've been closing down different parts of the, oh, the city. And uh, good to know. <laughs> so that might be <laughs> that might affect you. I did not know that. You know, are you flying out tonight, or are you no? I'm just I'm taking the train, and I'll be in the London offices for uh, two days, and I'm okay. hopefully taking the Eurostar over to France for some visits there. Okay, for, sorry, for a what there? For a, Minutes. For I'm going to go to, um, to Grenoble and yeah. the, the, the glaciologist there, and I'll be in Paris for four days. Okay, cool. Do you come to the London, so this is the London Nature Office? Yeah, you yeah. You come very often? About once a year. Yeah? Something like that. Okay. And it's really, I, I, I work in California, we have a very small office there with um, about 15 people in the office. Hmm. And so just to get a, the feeling that you actually are part of a larger enterprise, it's great to come back to see all of your colleagues in person and kind of reconnect Yeah, to the main mission. So you're out in San Francisco, is that I am, right? yeah. yeah. How do you like it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say that, that the Bay Area is a great place to live um, besides the earthquakes, the cost of living, and the traffic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but besides those three things. I guess it, but they, you, you can get to AGU pretty easily, I guess, when that... Yeah, when that very, in, I didn't go to AGU town. when he was in, in New Orleans or D.C. It's too far to travel. <laughs> I actually don't like AGU that much uh, professionally because it's very, very hard to, to sink your teeth into anything. Like, no matter where mm. you are, you at least I always feel like I should be somewhere else, probably. Oh, right. You're always missing something. Because I'm covering so many fields within AGU. It's really, really hard. Like that's I like how many meetings that are about this size, maybe a couple hundred people is great, yeah. great size. Because then a big chunk of the community is there, and you really get a feeling for what what, what they care about, what the big issues are, yeah. who good reviewers might be, things like that. So yeah. this is a good size for me. Have you ever been to this uh, American Meteorological Society? There's this atmospheric and oceanic fluid dynamics meetings. These are a nice. This I is like a not. nice size. It's like that's an AMS yeah. um, side meeting. Yeah, it's every two years in okay. the summer, and it's um. I think they're gonna do one. Yeah, I think there's one this year because I think it's on the odd years if I remember right. But huh. um, yeah, those those are a nice size, and it's kind of like this meeting here, like the Vix meeting. It's just a single session. You know, everyone's in the everyone's same in same room yeah. together, and I think that leads to you get more continuity. You know, it's the same group of yep. people for a few days and you you see them and you can have longer conversations i'm going to know. go to the international <laughs> congress on paleo oceanography yeah in um in sydney in september partially for that reason yeah single have you ever have you ever gone to that meeting no no i haven't it's no. only about i think maybe 900 people max okay yeah it might be smaller because of the travel involved for this one it's pretty sizable yeah but it's uh, all in plenary too. Okay, yeah. So and, single single session. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But the Bay Area is a great place to live for the combination of cultural diversity, amazing weather, mm. and access to the outdoors. So compared to London, mm. I was I was in London for two years. I mean, London is it's a great city, but it's hard to get out. 
Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And it's pretty flat around, you know, this part of the country. <laughs> you know, there's there's not really any mountains to to climb or, or hike. When we first moved here, everyone was like, oh, you got to go to Hampstead Heath. It's so amazing. And uh, my wife and I went, we're like, eh. <laughs> it's like some trees and a bunch of grass. And it's okay. And then you're there for two uh, years and like, God, oh, it's so great. I can't <laughs> believe how great it is. <laughs> yeah, I got to admit, I, I, I really like living here, but I feel that way about the beaches a little bit. You know, the beaches are like, they're fine. They're, they're okay. But no, we went to Deal. You know, so. Have you ever made a deal? No, no. Down on the South Coast? No. I loved it. It's like a it derelict um, ocean resort. Oh. Not many people. I had a rock beach on it. There was like a lot of medical waste in the beach. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I kind of love that <laughs> sense of collapsing grandeur yeah. that uh, parts of England have in a really delightful way. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I wonder if you'd like um, parts of the South for that, <laughs> the South, <laughs> South U.S. for that reason, collapsing, you know, old mansions <laughs> covered in moss and things like that. I have like, never you know. visited the Deep South in my entire life. I've never been to, like, I've been to t- Tennessee a little bit, never like Alabama or Mississippi, mm, right. anything like that. Never. never uh, been. Yeah, well, I, I've, I've got places I could show you that are definitely... Uh, falling down, grab <laughs> it. Uh, kind of, it's 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 fine. It's all right. It's not like it's it's not like that everywhere. But you can find that you know, yeah. if you want yeah. to. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about about publishing uh-huh. and the kind of publishing models. Sure. And this is another one that you know. F- feel free to engage on whatever level if you want to, because I'm not expecting you to like be a representative for all of publishing or something. <laughs> you know, I'm not expecting you to. But do you see any potential? disruptions to the way that the kind of scientific publishing you know like the way the scientific publishing is done right now uh, traditionally you mm. know where there's a journal and a paywall and the you know authors pay to publish right and the authors are doing the reviewing right and the authors are writing the content and it's 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 a very um it, it's a business model and a setup that has been criticized a lot, you know. Absolutely, and, you know, yeah. 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 So I just it'd be it'd be good to hear from you a bit, sure. kind of your thoughts on that, because you're you're on a side of the you know a lot of scientists don't get to see it from right. where you're seeing it. Yeah. Well, a couple of things to say. One is that I'm I'm not at all involved in in the money part of the company, right. so I don't have yeah. a lot of insights there. The other part of it is that I'm part of Springer Nature, so it's a company with about thirteen thousand employees worldwide. Mm-hmm. And I think more than half of what we publish is open access, not paywalled, mm-hmm. but the author is still paying a publication charge to publish open access. Right. I think more generally, there, there's no doubt that the publishing model is going to change. Hmm. So there's an initiative called Plan S, which has been announced by Coalition S. And they represent a group of funders who are in, in the process of basically trying to mandate that authors who are funded by their funding organizations may only publish in journals that are gold open access at the time of publication. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So it means that the paper itself, the final PDF or whatever, would be publicly available when it's published. Mm-hmm. So for us right now, we have ways of authors getting a legal copy of their paper to anyone who wants it. Mm-hmm. So if you publish a paper, you're the corresponding author, you'll get a link to what's called a, a shared it PDF. And that is a read-only PDF, which you're free to distribute to anyone mm-hmm. who would like it. But there is that intervening step where I would have to email you and say, Dan, can I have your paper, please? Right, yeah. And then now we're linking papers to people's ResearchGate profiles. You're also welcome to publish in, in preprints before you publish 
in nature. And then as of now, you're welcome to post the final accepted version of the paper, like your final latex copy or whatever it might be, wherever you want after six months. Hmm. Okay. So there are a lot of ways of making the paper available, but none of them are compliant with the current Plan S mandates. And hmm. what I can say is that it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a point of active discussion between Plan S and publishers like Nature. Hmm. Okay. And we're trying very hard to figure out from them, for example, would they ever adjust their current mandate that you cannot even publish in a hybrid journal? Hmm. So right now, uh, Plan S would not be hybrid journal compatible. There are other options like having what's called a, a mirror journal, which would be nature mirror, for lack of a better, <laughs> better name. And it would be the same editorial policies and processes, but it would be all open access with a very high author publication charge, most mm-hmm. likely. And then we would run a subscription version of nature for everyone who didn't want to publish open access or didn't have the money to pay for a high author publication charge. It gets a bit complicated then. There's also, there has been discussion on uh, places like Scholarly Kitchen about having a submission fee. Hmm. So I'm, I'm personally responsible for roughly 30 papers per year at Nature, and that's a full-time job. What it means is that you can do the very, very like back of the envelope calculation about what an APC would have to be just to support my own salary, hmm. much less the salary of everybody else who also would work on every paper that I handle. Right. The sub-editors, the art team, the production team, the press team, the news and views team, everything like that. It's a very, very large um, APC that would result just yeah. from that. Too hmm. large to support, I think, in any kind of practical level. So if you had a... Submission fee, it would mean that the 93% of papers that I reject either before or after review would have income for the company. Hmm. Although possibly people might be a little less willing to try exactly. if because of that initial no, charge. No, that's exactly right. Yeah. And we're doing a lot of research in the communities we serve to try and understand how they would feel about that. Hmm. That wouldn't even um, like a two hundred quid uh, AP, uh, submission fee wouldn't be enough. It would probably be a, a combination of processes. Hmm. Then there are much more draconian options. So Nature has roughly one hundred and forty, one hundred and fifty employees for just Nature itself, and a large chunk of that is devoted to our amazing front half content. So our, our news team has a lot of reporters that are full-time staff writers and regular science reporters that just work for us. And we have our amazing comment team. We have an editor for books and arts. We have a large team for news and views. So every single section of Nature Research Highlights has its mm-hmm. own staff. But that is typically not the reason that either libraries or scientists are buying or paying for or supporting nature. They're primarily doing it for the reason of the the back half primary research content. Mm -hmm. So one way to dramatically reduce the cost of nature would be to remove the front half. Mm, Right. This would be horrible from my perspective. It's part of our mission statement since 1869 to provide a forum for discussion of science and to communicate science broadly across society, not just to scientists. And it's an, it's an amazing part of the magazine. I think mm. we have world-class journalism and writing in nature on the, mm. just a huge range of topics. And it would be, I think, just a catastrophic change in what nature is to, mm. to contemplate that. But 
we don't know. I think that ultimately it's going to be a choice for the author, science, and funding community to decide if they continue to value journals like ours. So you can make the argument that we've we've launched, I don't know, 30 or so journals that are nature or something, nature, geoscience, climate change, yeah. photonics, energy, whatever it might be. And at least from the one narrow perspective of impact factor, they have all done extremely well. Hmm. And what that argues potentially, at least to me, is that in the current time of this explosion of predatory journals, for example, where you have no idea what the quality of the journal is. There, yeah. There's, if anything, a growing value to journals that have uh, professional editors who have no stake in the science mm. and are not directly involved in the money. Of, I mean, of course I would say that, right? Because <laughs> this, this is my job. But I, I honestly believe that that's true. Uh, yeah. But whether or not the, the changing publication models will support professional editors and highly selective journals, I don't know. We can have a world in which we would have to for financial reasons, accept more papers. Hmm. Now, I would I would never accept more papers because th that that were technically non-robust that I that I had good reason to believe were flawed technically, hmm. but we could if we had to alter our editorial threshold to take in more papers hmm. yeah. that we otherwise would have rejected on grounds of novelty or importance. When the yeah when the synapse fires change the threshold. Yeah, when the, like when I the don't synapse. I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. but. I, I know how to do it. Well, you know, what it, what it makes me think of is, you know, uh, over the last few decades, we saw, you know, the rise of the Internet and the rise of kind of easy access news. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a lot of traditional totally. newspapers and traditional publishers, you know, went under or had to make, yep. you know, drastic cuts. But The to, Guardian to is still around. around. Yeah, that's true. That's New York Times is still around. Yeah. And they, they all... They, they all have gone a subscription model kind of route, yep. but it, it took some time to, for them to figure out, didn't it? And and I don't know if, if this is, you know, I have no sense of is, is the current model working for them or not, but there was a I, shock. Yeah, the, the Times is doing much period. better financially than it was uh, previously. I think they went yeah. through a, a pretty dark time mm -hmm. when they really were not sure if they could make it through. Yeah. But now they, I'm sure you know, they give you 10 papers for free, 10 yeah. articles for free yeah. per month, and then after that you need to pay. And I think that the market decided that there is a value to doing that. I mean, the, li the liability or problem, I don't know. The, the issue for us is that we don't produce the content in the back half, mm. in, the, in the research part. Right. You do. Right. So it, it would be, I don't know. I, you could imagine a, maybe a similar situation where you, know, you, you could download five papers for free per month. Hmm. And then after that, you need to pay a subscription fee. I don't actually know. We can have the the front half of the magazine paywalled in the same way. And there's hmm. talks about, you know, would anybody pay a subscription fee on a, on a monthly basis to get our, our front half content? I don't hmm. I don't know. I What I do know is that these ideas are all being discussed by the upper level management of the company. Hmm. And I'm optimistic that, <laughs> that we, like the Times and the Guardian, are going to find a way through it. But yeah, but, but like you were saying, a lot of what you know those papers and to some extent nature, like a lot of that value comes from the credibility of the right. you know you know that there's a thorough process there that you know the on the newspaper side the stories have been fact checked and that this is is a rigorous you know sort of thing and on the nature side that there's a a board of professional editors who are making sure that you know the science is right. high quality and 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 useful to put out there into the world so that's got to be part of the part of the value. 
because if you don't have, you know, like you said, if you just have an explosion of predatory journals, uh, then we lose our barometer for like, well, where's the quality stuff <laughs> happening? Where's so we, when yeah. we talk about the the services that we feel that we provide, it'd be in a very general sense three things. One is to um, select, and then enhance, and then amplify. Mm. So the selection process is me. And then the enhancement process is trying to run a rigorous review process that I think usually has the effect of dramatically improving the quality of the papers. This is not to say that peer review is perfect or that I individually am perfect as an editor. I mean, I've clearly made, I don't know if mistakes is the right word, but there have been cases in which the peer review process didn't go the way that I or the authors might have, might have hoped. And we've had many retractions of papers mm. over the years. Yeah. For fraudulent and non-fraudulent reasons. Um, but I think looking back on my own academic career and thinking about the reviews that I used to get and the process I went through, the, the process that nature is substantially more rigorous than what I went through. Mm. And when I talk to people now who have published in nature, they would usually say that the reviews they get at nature are much more rigorous than the reviews they get at a, at a specialty, at other, other kinds of journals. Mm. That's obviously anecdotal. But I think that there is a, a, a rationale for that. And then we have a, a great press team that works with authors and other institutions to try and appropriately amplify your message. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, and again, that so that the press release gets written, the editors read it, and there can be a dialogue between what the press team would like to say about the paper and what we are comfortable saying about the paper yeah. and we can kind of iterate a few times and sometimes the message can still be to be sent out in a way that in retrospect unjustifiably amplifies the hmm. paper's conclusions but i think that's quite rare and i think you should do like a really good job on on the press side to make sure that it's amplified but not distorted <laughs> you know just exactly yeah yeah hmm. yeah exactly so you mentioned that um that you know when you got reviews writing papers you mentioned you were in, in ecology before yeah i was well i have uh, i have two degrees in forestry and i know i know very little about about trees i was in a lab that did remote sensing primarily of continental to global scales and did uh, carbon cycle modeling primarily okay i did a lot of work on land surface phenology which is using satellites and computers to try and um, both detect, monitor, and predict the dynamics of the terrestrial growing season at large spatial scales. Oh, so it's sort of when do you turn the plants on in the model, for example, things like that. Hmm. I did quite a bit of work on that. And yeah, I was at Utah State uh, from about 2001 to 2008. Hmm. Yeah. A really nice, small university in a small town in uh, northeastern Utah with great skiing and great mountain biking. Hmm. And I, I, mean, I miss those parts of my life. And I had... I had a great department. I was hired in geography, which was then merged into um, aquatic watershed and earth resources. Oh, okay. And I think we had like seven or eight faculty, and I was pushing to get one word in the title for every faculty member. <laughs> I think we were going to merge with um, natural resources. It was going to merge with agriculture, the colleges, and I thought, well, could we have could we have natural resources or the environment? Or the <laughs> <laughs> that didn't work out, and yeah. then we. We organized into uh, uh, watershed sciences. We need to go backwards, come up with a really cool acronym, and then work backwards. I know. <laughs> it's very tempting. Yeah, aquatic yeah. watershed and earth resources was like a word. It was like, no, that's not a good acronym. 
<laughs> but uh, the, we would have people come in. We do like a- annual um, survey of the department kind of things to kind of check the the climate in the department or their concerns people have about. And hmm. and, and uh, I think the only complaint we ever had was that we were we were too social. <laughs> too social. I don't know. I think that stuff helps, right? Socializing and yeah, you know, it, it was a really so. great department, and I, I I do miss the people there hmm. a, a lot. Yeah. So that. It, did you grow up around there, or were you? No, you know, I, was, I was born in Washington D.C. Yeah. My parents divorced when I was two. My mom, I only learned this recently, actually, um, when she was pregnant with me. She and my father and my younger brother, who had been older brother who had been born, um, were out in New Mexico, and my mom tried uh, really hard to get my dad to move to New Mexico. Yeah, and he, at least from her retelling, uh, declined. And she wanted to buy the Taos Inn in Taos, New Mexico, which was, I think, at the time, mm, semi-derelict. Okay, yeah. And it's now like this beautiful, small kind of boutique hotel. And so she would, uh, she got her degree in anthropology and moved with my brother and me to New Mexico in 75. Hmm. And then worked as an archaeologist for uh, the School of American Research for a long time. Oh, okay. And then she went back to grad school for getting her doctorate in psychology. So you grew up, it sounds like a pretty academic, you know, house, household. Yeah, to some extent, pretty much. Right? Yeah. yeah. It's terrible. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my dad, my dad is like a complete um, life of the mind kind of guy. I, I think uh, he worked as a political scientist his whole career, mostly at the CIA, uh, not as a spy, as an analyst, mm-hmm. uh, definitely not as a spy. Um, and staying in DC, yeah. Well, you're you're all out in New Mexico, exactly. Yeah. So I was kind of going to DC in the summers for mm. seeing him with my brother. Okay, but um, my dad retired at age seventy two after running a, like a major operation at the CIA in his, in his last couple of years. He he has like this nonstop analytical mind. He kind of like cannot cannot turn it off. You know, people who who can only talk about science, like, no matter what the situation <laughs> is, they will only talk about yeah. science. Yeah. <laughs> so he began teaching classes at, at church about like the book of Job or something like this. And he just went hardcore. He like treated it like a CIA analysis. <laughs> I kind of want to hear that. <laughs> I'm sure he was amazing. It's going to be fantastic. So I got him the, um, the R. Crumb uh, version of the Old Testament. Yeah. Oh, what's that? I don't know. R. Crumb is his that. famous like um, underground cartoonist who's famous for doing like super off-color uh, cartooning work. Okay. But he did a completely straight telling of the Book of Job, but mm-hmm. with, like, the, the classic R. Crumb zany illustrations. <laughs> gave it a great tone. <laughs> did he analyze that as well? Was he able to analyze that? No, he, he didn't. I'm, um, anyway, I, I keep thinking about um, uh, tormenting him. He's, he's, a, he's religious, but in a very intellectual sense. And huh. he one time he was saying that he was like, oh, Michael... You know, you you say that you're not religious, but you know you have these interests in the out of doors and in cooking. Like that, that's your religion. Huh. And I was like, Dad, that's not that's not religion. That's like that's like an, a, a, an enthusiasm for food or something like that. And I don't believe in the huh. supernatural. Yeah. And, so, and he said, Well, I don't either. I said, like, What do you mean you don't either? I can, how can you're not religious, but you you go to church, you study religion, but you're not re- you don't believe in the supernatural? Like, no, not really. Oh, that's interesting. So, yeah. but it, it was a, it was a construct for him, some construct that made sense in a, in, yeah, in a way. Yeah, I like, uh, he he loves the the study of religion. Huh. And we will, I will be in the car sometimes, and he'll start talking like, "Oh, Dad, are, are you about to talk about the rise of, of monotheism again?" <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, he's um, 
he's super passionate about what he's interested in, and it includes religion. Okay, in, yeah. in a way that I I can't really um, <laughs> I can't really connect with. But it, well, it kind of reminds it reminds me a little bit of um, my wife's granddad. Mm. Um, so he was the kind who, you know, how in a lot of churches. I'm assuming this isn't just a Southern thing. I think this is all over the place in the U.S. anyway. Like there's the morning service on Sunday and there's the evening service, which is less less attended, right? (laughs) And so he would go to the evening service and, Mm. you know, the pastor would get started and he would stand up and start asking really hard analytical questions about, you know, (laughs) his his message in particular Bible passages and things. And, you know, he would often get the response of... uh, well, Skeet, that was his name, Skeet. He's like, I- I'm going to have to get back to you on that one. I need some time to, <laughs> time to think about it. Put a pen in that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, and it also, I mean, it also sort of reminds me of, uh, you know, you'd hear descriptions of, of Newton and other you know, scientists kind mm. of feverishly working out, you know, seeing what they can derive from language in the Bible and particular numbers and things yes, like exactly. that. Yes, exactly. Kind of reminds me of that sort of uh, the picture of a, of a person who's like, I mean, and you can tell me if you think that's right or not, but they're like deeply engaged with the the concepts and the specific text of the religion without necessarily plugging into the, like you said, the supernatural yeah. elements of it, you know. But I think that, that early engagement of, of um, natural science with religion and trying to make natural science conform to religion mm. and the literal interpretation of the Bible is, is really fascinating, particularly as it relates to geology and ideas about plate tectonics and long-term climate change and things like that, some of which we published on you know, back in the late 19th century in, in nature. is really fascinating. Oh, that, that intersection between those two worlds? of the Yeah, because I mean, yeah. There, there were natural scientists who, who you know, firmly believed that the Earth was quite young and that there were no evidences of the past changes in climate in a, in a major way. Hmm. And then when the early evidence about glaciations and things like that began to come around and people began to be confronted with this, I think very difficult for people faced with transient, uh, sparse, hard to interpret geological evidence. And f- mm. Fitting that into a theological framework was not a straight, not a straightforward process. Now it's so interesting. I'm trying to remember the name of the the name of the book, but I read a book a few years ago, and that was um, uh, maybe the name will come to me. But one of the points of the book was, you know, folks like Newton who did what you who attempted to do what you were just describing, mm. you know, to try to take the emerging world of the natural sciences and yeah. to try to put it, you know, try to put the, you know, Bible and religions into that framework that, um, that that caused a lot of confusion was this, this author's point was that, yeah. no, no, th- those were supposed to be separate things. You know, one was supposed <laughs> to be kind of this, uh, a logical, you know, evidence-based construct, the, the logos, whereas the religion was supposed to be the mythos, the more, mm. you know, that, no, no, the, these stories in the Bible are, they're, they're metaphors, they're analogies. You're not necessarily supposed to take them literally. And when, you, <laughs> and when you take them literally, you actually kind of break them and you kind of, you know, distort them a bit. And like, yeah. and so her, her, her point was like that that's been a huge, cultural force that's still relevant now right you still have people who you know oh, yeah. are, are climate change deniers on, in on, the u.s i would say yeah yeah they're definitely uh, on the grounds that they think well no my my religious belief can contradicts this scientific belief so i'm just gonna i'm just gonna I mean, not engage with the whole there, there are people who can maintain the scientific principles and a young earth at the same time my my dad's second wife's brother was a, a nuclear chemist, so working with very long half-lives, hmm. but believed that the Earth was 6,000 years old at the same time and saw no, <laughs> saw no contradiction because um, from his perspective, and I'm not, I don't question the perspective at all, God could make the world 
look like whatever God wanted it to look yeah. like. And it looked like it was 6,000 years old. It, it's a thing that is technically true, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like you can do a lot of science with that particular <laughs> idea. Yeah, you, like... <laughs> you do have to actually end up separating them. Yeah. yeah and yeah. sort of assume that it's young, but it, it, you know, it has all these appearances of being a bit older. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds uh, sounds hard. Oh, the book was um, the case for God, which um, oh, okay. the, the the title is misleading because it's not exactly trying to. It's it sounds like it's a pamphlet that's trying to get you to believe in God, but it's not that actually. It's it's more mm. about the case for maybe you know separating the the mythological you know mythos part right, of the Bible right. and keeping and and and. Yeah, keeping those as analogies and kind of recognizing that maybe Newton shouldn't. Ha- I'm not really criticizing Newton. I'm saying this is what the author was right. sort of saying was that um, maybe Newton shouldn't have tried to you know fit science and and religion into the same container in, in the same way. Mm-hmm. They they need different perspectives. Um, Catherine Hayhoe does a lot of good work on sure. this. You know, she's a an evangelical Christian who yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know talks to to her community directly mm-hmm. about climate science and about why. Uh, we have this tremendous amount of evidence for, you know, human driven climate change and mm-hmm. why, you know, and, and she argues as to why we should do something about it in a, mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't, doesn't contradict, uh, doesn't contradict the, you know, faith of. Yeah. And her, she's amazingly good at that too. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I've only read, I've read some articles of, of hers and yeah, she's really very, really articulate about mm-hmm. it. Really gets, gets right to the heart of it. And it's, it's such a, such an important skill. Um, and I, I look at that and I, I really wish that, um, it's so important to have that kind of to be able to cut across different communities like mm-hmm. that. You know, it kind of reminds me of the start of our conversation when we were talking about interdisciplinary boundaries. But there's right. also lots of boundaries in culture that would be really nice to yeah. to blend yeah. to talk across and to get better lines of communication across. Um, I think there's yeah. a there's a tendency for some people, justifiably, to react defensively when faced with climate denialism. But that's, I think, essentially never an effective strategy. Yeah. Yeah, and the one that Catherine is pursuing of engagement and understanding is, I think, the only way to actually make any progress. It's compassionate, right? You you assume the other person's coming from like that they're making a good faith argument that they're right. not just you know that they have real concerns that are wrapped up in the way they're they might be they might be expressing it in a way that kind of puts your defenses up if you're mm-hmm. not careful, but that there are real concerns behind there exactly. that you can that you can talk about and you can and yeah. you can. You can acknowledge them as real concerns, you know. Like, um, I mean, I, I'm trying to think of an example, but something, something. Often, they're, I guess, kind of cultural and value-based sort of things, you know. That, um, uh, I, I know, for, for example, one of the fears I think of the in the South, anyway, of you know some some versions, some denominations of Christianity mm-hmm. is there's this idea of uh, oh well the, the the there there's a conspiracy to impose a one world government and on everyone and to yeah. get, get rid uh-huh. of religion sure. and and that's like a real that's a deep fear that a lot of people have and and yeah. and even though that sounds really bizarre maybe to somebody who who like just works in climate science like that fear can you you can bring that fear up in a person by saying maybe we should all have a carbon tax you know, all over the world <laughs> you can make people go like well hang on isn't this that one world government thing where you're going to get rid of my religion and like i don't want you to do that it's just a and starting it's, point know, it's a, <laughs> mm-hmm. for claiming to the next carbon tax <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really fascinating conversation. So you, so you, but getting back to the, so you grew up kind of in two different cities. And I, I did. Guess, yeah. and I guess they're pretty different places. They're quite, yeah, they're quite different. <laughs> yeah, different. I mean, Santa Fe at the time, we, we we lived out in the boonies, which has now been completely built up. Mm. And my mom has a great fondness for our 
big projects. And so she bought a very large uh, Adobe house that had been occupied for a long time by uh, Bruce Cooper, who was a fairly well-known kind of craft artist. He did a lot of tin work and furniture work in Santa Fe and throughout the Southwest, actually. Mm. And so it had a huge studio in one part, and then it had a very old quasi-derelict <laughs> uh, Adobe main house that, that we sort of worked on over the years. And it was a bit isolated in the sense that there weren't really a lot of kind of like kids around. I remember going out mm. in these big fields and hitting around a baseball like by myself for yeah. a lot of time and playing a lot of ping pong, things like that. Mm. And the D.C. area, yeah. I mean, it, my dad lived in um, Arlington, Alexandria, and they, part of it was gigantic conurbation. But it was a nice change to, to, mm. to go back and be in the city. And mm. then I went to school in Santa Fe through middle school and then moved to D.C. for high school when my mom went back mm. to get her doctorate in psychology. Was she doing that in New Mexico or did she... No, in Denver. I think, Denver. If she, I think if she had stayed in Santa Fe, I, I probably would have stayed. Mm. But given that there was going to be enough people anyway, right. I thought this is probably my last chance to see my dad a lot. Yeah, and you probably... I imagine you probably had built up some friends in D.C. potentially from, you know... Or, like not a whole not, lot, not actually. I, I was in... Summer camps, okay, yeah. but they were kind of different yeah, summer camps, yeah. and I did have friends that would last for a while, but not not a whole lot. So when I, when I went to a, you know high school I'd never been to before, mm. and at the time I'd almost died in a, a jet ski accident, so oh, I was really? sort of hobbling around and on crutches when I was. Oh, wow. <laughs> did that uh, help? Did, uh, did that help for her? <laughs> hard, hard, hard to say. I probably got hard some pity, I guess, but <laughs> it, it, it was a difficult recovery and. I'm glad that it happened before high school began, like not, mm. not during high school for sure. Because that would have been, yeah, you, you got to come in as that and then... Exactly, yeah. <laughs> instead of having having some change, you know. Okay, yeah, so you decided, well, there's going to be a big change anyway, so I might as well, you know. Yeah. I guess it, it probably gave you some sense of control over it too to make a decision about like, okay, well, what am I, mm. I going to do? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think about it as having control at the time but thinking back about it yeah, i guess yes I'm like mm. my mom technically had custody so she could have blocked it mm. if she had wanted to i believe although we never discussed the legality she sort of just said well you know do you want to go okay yeah. and my older brother mm. at the time was shall we say a, a bit rebellious yeah and mm. <laughs> so you know maybe he would have um done better with my dad it didn't work out that way he was still quite rebellious <laughs> <laughs> what's he up to now <laughs> he, he has worked as kind of related to what i used to do as an academic so he's also yeah. been involved in kind of geographical work and um, gis research and working more with i think sustainable forestry and things like that okay yeah um so you're in in dc you do high school in dc yep and what happens then what's the then i went to the university of virginia for okay. my undergraduate degree yeah. and I was there from 88 to 92, and I got a degree in environmental science, which was a, kind of a, a classic vegetable soup of previous departments that were told that they were either going to get nuked or they could merge. Right, okay, yeah. So it was, um, it was ecology, atmospheric sciences, uh, hydrology, and geology. So you had, you had core courses in each of those, yeah. and then you had to do more work in chemistry, biology, physics, and math as well. Yeah, so you've had lots of experience in these areas where there's lots of different fields, you know, yeah. all, all operating under the same roof yep. anyway, and you know. So there's a lot of yeah, intersectionality there, and I, I got I hooked up with um with Hank Sugar, who's a 
noted developer of early forest models, Jabo and 4A models, and was doing and continued to do um, just amazing work. So I did some undergraduate research with him and then met a few of his colleagues that were also senior scientists in other, other countries. And that was important just to get some encouragement hmm. to pursue a career in science. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, so that's good. You had an, under, an undergrad professor you yeah. know, who was encouraging you, who gave you some positive, yep. you know, that's, that's so important. It was uh, really boring yeah. work in many ways. I was looking at <laughs> stomatal appeals, like looking at um, stomatal dimensions and things like yeah. that. So not super exciting. And it kind of made me think of, I really want to go into a very microscope-based career. Mm. <laughs> maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. <laughs> stomata is little openings on plants, so they exchange right, yeah, with the CO2 and, through the, and water vapor. Yeah. But I, I, I still, I took two years off. I, I actually, moved, I moved back to uh, Santa Fe and I worked in cooking for two years hmm. after my undergrad. My wife had been in Stanford uh, training for athletics and then she met me in um, Santa Fe and we weren't married at the time. And she worked at the opera and I worked at um, various kind of cooking, oh, catering wow. jobs. Super different. <laughs> yeah. We, well, yeah, we met yeah. at the opera. Her father is a musician, plays the bassoon. And he was at the Santa Fe Opera for 37 years. And so his kids, my wife and her younger brother, worked there like in the parking lot as an usher and things like that. So she'd been working there off and on for a while. Wow. So that was like 92 to 94, we were in Santa Fe. And then I, I decided I didn't want to do cooking full-time as a career. Hmm. Just like the lifestyle was hmm. pretty bad. Intense. Yeah, yeah. pretty intense. Yeah. Like weekends, holidays, whenever you want to be with your friends you can't essentially yeah at those times like yeah i don't think i'm gonna do that and social hours yeah you know, a lot of drinking yeah. a lot of drug abuse yeah yes that's what i've heard <laughs> i've got a friend who, who tried that uh for a while he tried to be a chef and pursued that yeah and got got really good and you know was was relied on quite a lot but yeah he's he told me some stories about the it's just not compatible with you know, you can kind of only hang out with other people who are in that because they're the only people yep. who understand what you're going it's through. It's very tribal. <laughs> yeah. It's very tribal. Yeah. Um, that's, that's interesting. But it's cool that you tried it. I like that. I like that. I've got a. I mean, my part of my reaction is I like hearing a story of, oh, I tried something very non-academic and then decided to, yeah. you know, come back into mm-hmm. it in a way. I'm glad and, I did. You know, I mean, it was a great mm-hmm. break to have, just mentally to have a break. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think there's a fear. I mean, and I, uh, this is part of my fear too. There's a fear of like, well, if I if I get off this track, am I going to be able to get back on it in any way? You know, sure. in any sort of ac- academic sort of thing. I think there's a fear of. So it's it's always encouraging to hear stories of like, well, no, you you have options. You, you can know, take you, time off. You yeah. can you can do something else. You know, but there um, I think there is like it's overall perception that you have to get your undergrad and go to grad school do a postdoc, get a faculty job or whatever it might be, or, or else you're doing something wrong. That's just absolute rubbish. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we, we, we also shouldn't be putting that artificial pressure on people. We should let people like, sure. we should let their lives unfold how they need to. You know, when unfold. we, when we do um, um, surveys at nature, we, we do all kinds of like uh, surveys of academic expectations and lifestyles, career pathways and things like that. And at least in the U S I mean like 80% of people getting PhDs think they're going to get a faculty job and about 20% do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah. most of them are not told going into it that they're not going to get a faculty job. Yeah, isn't that crazy? We really should it's do It's completely madness. Yeah. But other countries have the expectation that you will not get a permanent job in science, but that what you get through a PhD will be useful in a wide range of other careers, which I think is kind of happening in a de facto way anyway, particularly mm-hmm. in, in quantitative careers. Now PhD students are getting 
either poached or going to, into industry. Yeah, and I think the UK is trying to respond to that by having these doctoral training programs where huh. it's sort of they, they try to build some level of you know skills that might be useful outside of academia through kind right. of limited coursework um, to, to try to make it clear that, um, well, one phrase that this didn't come from the DTP world, but I like this phrase that, uh, remember, academia is the alternative career. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's totally true. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was talking to uh, Natalia Gomez or Carling Hay, uh, two of uh, Jerry Matrubica's, um ex-grad students, and one of them said that in her graduating class from Harvard, I think she and one other person were the only ones who even contemplated a career in academia. Mm, okay. Everyone else just went to went to industry. Oh, what, sorry, what field did you say that was? Geosciences. Like geoscience? Yeah. 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 I guess in, so is it like hard hard rock geoscience? Uh, the the department was, like, was a big know. mix. Okay. I mean, their, their lab was doing um, GIA modeling and level reconstructions and things like that. Mm. But the overall department was doing a, a much bigger range of things. Yeah, that's one of the things I'm unsatisfied with in terms of my own perception is I feel like I have a very poor sense of where everyone's going. You know, the mm. folks who, who aren't sticking in in the academic kind of world or the research world, I'm right. like, where, where are they going? I kind of know of a few people, but statistically, I I feel like I have a very poor sense of that, and I would I would love to get a better handle on, you know, where's kind of, where is my cohort kind of going, and where are you yeah. know what what are the different options that people have used in the past, and I guess that's one of the hard things is that um I mean some of the jobs that people are going into now didn't exist ten you know five ten years ago, and you know various data yeah, data sure. science jobs are starting to to explode, and people are going into this. Um, There's a lot more you know, happening in the packaging and redelivery of publicly available data mm. is one thing that seems to be happening with um, startups in the Bay Area. So people trying to make it easier to get, process, and deal with a wide range of satellite data with some level of a value-added product on top of it, Yeah, for example. A and that, that's like happening. Or an app or something or something to make yeah, it easier. Yeah, to... it might be either running an agricultural model or, or something like that. And there, there's you know, people going into reinsurance. Hmm. People going into into finance. I've been going on for a long time anyway with kind of quantitative time series skills. Yeah. How did you find your way into publishing? What was some of the, the routes? Well, I got, I mean, if most people come into publishing not my way. It's <clears throat> many people have a postdoc or whatever, and, and they um, decide that they don't like academic lifestyles or didn't mm. want to be an academic or have always had a passion for publishing. I was never that way. I never had a really fixed career trajectory. I never got into grad school thinking I had to become an academic. Hmm. I got out, I got a couple of job offers, and I you know, went to Utah State. And then I began to sort of post-tenure enjoy the job less than I thought I would like to be enjoying the job. Hmm. And the, the parts of academia that I liked were getting smaller. Hmm. So I still loved doing research. But I didn't really like doing class prep and grading and writing proposals mm. and doing reports and mm. going to committee meetings and things like that, which was a pretty big part yeah. of being an academic. Mm. And I found it to be both somewhat boring and exhausting, mm. uh, just me personally, and kind of wondering if I wanted to do this for the rest of my professional career. Mm. And I got tenure, and then soon after, I was due for sabbatical. And I had a great sabbatical worked out to go to to go to Barcelona, great spot, great lab. Hmm. I had fantastic funding from from Spain to come. I had a new NASA grant, and I, I basically uh, 
turned it all down to go mm. <laughs> to go to work for. So nature was kind of my my in lieu of sabbatical. I was right. on leave for one year. I liked it. I asked for a second year of leave. And they said okay. Yeah, and then, and then my department head said you can't have three years of leave. Yeah. You need to decide. And I mean, it was kind of tough because we we had we had built a, a great house. Well, I thought it was a great house in Utah, mm. which was kind of like our small dream house. And then we had to uh, leave that and leave. I had to leave a large part of what was really like my self identity about being yeah. someone who does a lot of skiing and mountain biking, for example. Mm. And neither of which I have done for a very long time. Yeah. So, and I, I lived in like uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, and Missoula, Montana, Logan, Utah, Santa Fe, New Mexico for the previous, you know, 20 some years, like yeah. all these small towns. And then I was living in London. <laughs> it was quite a shock. And then, so the Bay Area is kind of like a good intermediate thing where we have an office there. I can, I can work there and it's a huge um, city, but with amazing access to the outdoors. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you mentioned that part about identity, and uh, you know, I think for a lot of folks, also um, you know, deciding to get off of the academic path for very good, you know, reasons for life satisfaction reasons and, and mental mm. health reasons, and all very good, good, healthy reasons. I think, and I, I, I don't know to what extent you struggle with this, but I know a lot of folks would struggle with the the identity aspect of that, of like, mm. well, they had been used to seeing themselves as. You know this academic, but you, yeah. said, you said you hadn't really seen that in your head. No, so, you know, that maybe. that part of it never mm. was an issue for me. Although I agree that that is an issue for potentially for a lot of people. Mm. That yeah, I never really cared about being an academic. That's that's healthy. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think it, it's it's healthy to kind of hold on to it loosely and to not <laughs> to not hold on to it too tightly. You know, I, mean, you, I think it's also good to you know, be. Well, I don't know. If, I don't know how self-aware I actually am, but after a while, you kind of you kind of see the people that are becoming leaders in the field and doing really amazing work. And I think that I was doing solid work in the fields I was pursuing, but I was mm. never the kind of person who was going to be at the very top of the field. I think, or publishing mm. papers mm. in Nature. Mm. And then when you you kind of you kind of see that about yourself, you think you either. I need to change who I am or how I approach my job in a very substantial way or accept where I am and be happy with that, which, of course, is a totally valid option. Or think about something else where your skills, ability, and personality might be more suited to a position in which you can make potentially a bigger contribution to society than you did as an academic. And I think that's how it worked out for me. Yeah, to try to find where, where you fit best in terms of what's going to give you a sense of your satisfaction and what's going to what's like, going I don't I don't know what authors would say like the authors I work with would say but I think I'm a better editor than I was an academic <laughs> <laughs> opinions may differ I don't know <laughs> oh man how are you doing on time I know you said you kind of what, wanted what, what it's, almost, it's almost eight unbelievably is it, is maybe wild, we can wrap you know, up so. in about ten minutes or so yeah that sounds good I got okay. a I got a short list of the kind of rapid fire questions oh, yeah, that sure. I usually like to do at the Great. end so this would be this okay. would be a good time good time for it so um it's a series of questions that all have this format. Um, what's something you've learned about X? I stole it from another podcast, but it's fine. Okay. Um, <laughs> so what's something... Inspired you know, by. Yeah, there you go. Inspired by. <laughs> um, and so these can be... You can feel free to take you know, however long or short you want to answer these. So okay. So by, by rapid fire, I mean that I, I will try to be very 
brief and help. Okay. <laughs> so what's something you've learned about editing? If you had a takeaway, you know, sort of statement or two and, um, you know, some something you've learned that maybe you didn't know, you know, before you got in, involved with that whole process and involved with yeah. you know, being an editor. One thing that was really hard I had to learn very quickly is that you don't make technical judgments. Mm, okay. So when we come into the job, you get a paper that's remotely in your old field and you know it is horribly flawed, <laughs> technically. <laughs> but if it was all true, it would be very interesting. Hmm. And our editorial threshold, typically, not always, typically, is that if a paper is interesting in principle, we then have it reviewed and we rely on peer reviewers to review that paper, hmm. okay. to make the technical judgment. And that is terrifying. That is so terrifying. Because <laughs> you're, you're sending things out to review that you, you very much think are wrong. Hmm. Okay. And your sense is, what if the reviewers don't pick up on the issues that I that I think are there. You can, of course, kind of ask them, like, I'm concerned about X, Y, and Z. Right. Do you think these are valid concerns? That's fine to do that. But it's still very scary. Hmm. But the reality is I've never had a paper published that I thought was wrong hmm. and that the referees also did not think was wrong. Right. Okay. So, so far, at least from my perspective, the system has worked. <laughs> it's okay if you don't have an answer to this, but that just made me think. I had one. Um, I submitted something. Um, to a journal, and uh, they found five reviewers for it. Uh -huh. I'm like, why? That <laughs> seemed like a lot to me. Maybe maybe that's standard. I don't know. There's so no, <laughs> yeah, there's no magic number. If a paper is um, like just about physical oceanography, it'll have two. Yeah. But if it's about the interaction of uh, physical oceanography, atmospheric dynamics, southern annular mode, for example, right. um, ice shelves, and impacts get, on fisheries, mm, you know, try to get one, one get, or two from you'll each. You'll end up with five. Then you have to be really careful. You, you, you can't say to someone who's a fisheries ecologist, review this whole paper, because they'll get it, and they'll be like, why, why am I reviewing this paper? And you have to say, I, look, I just want you to review the fisheries ecology part, and I'll get the rest of it covered. It's fine right. to just do, do a narrow report. Right, okay. That explains it, yeah. Cause, and I, I thought it was probably something like that, because the paper that I'm thinking of has some physics, and it has some biogeochemistry yeah. and some ecology, yeah. so they probably tried to get, you know, Very likely. cover all of those. But then what will happen is that the, the fisheries ecologist will, will comment on the ice shelf dynamics, and mm. you're like, oh, what is <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, to be fair, the, that that person could make valuable contributions by saying, yeah. "Okay, I don't understand how you're framing this and talking about this." And oh, that, exactly. And that, and that means that you know your general audience probably won't understand quite what you mean either. So you might want to think about how you, you know, frame yeah. frame this part or how you explain, you know, your model setup. They can be is, really good know. comments, but a lot of times you have to kind of interpret those kind of reviews for the authors. Like, you know, you mm. don't need to worry about this part of it necessarily, but oh, you know, right. you do respond to it, but you don't need to make a huge effort to address <laughs> that okay. particular comment. How about writing? What's something you've learned about, about the writing process? Do you mean writing that I do or writing that the authors do? Or, uh, um, well, I'll let you answer how you want. Um, do you want to, because uh, you, you've got a perception on yeah. both, both sides, you know, as an editor. So I, I just, um, I don't know if you saw it, but I, I just wrote a long Twitter thread about th things that I have seen come up repeatedly in review that either can make review go more smoothly or annoy reviewers. Right. Yeah, I saw I did see this. It was um, yeah. in you know, I can I can link to it when we post oh, cool. this, post this up. But it was like really, really mundane things like uh, you know, don't send us copy that has really tiny fonts and single mm -hmm. spacing that is just hard to read. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, try not to use words like 
revolutionary or unprecedented or just kind of flowery words. Yeah. They're really hard to defend. They're not scientific. Um, avoid using the word significant hmm. when you mean big yeah, or, significant or major. Invokes, it invokes statistics. No. I, I'm a fan of writing declarative titles, titles that give a sense of the paper's main finding in the title. Hmm. Uh, same thing with figure legend titles. If you can, tell us what the figure is actually about. Um, yes. There's a real tendency, because it's so easy to do, to say something like, uh, you know, ozone depletion affects the location of the westerly wind belt. Yeah. Okay, but how does it affect it? Tell us what, like, at least tell us the direction of the effect, hmm. not just that there is some kind of interaction or inter- effect here. Yeah, I like that point about the figure captions. About you know, the first sentence can be, "What do you want me to get out of this?" Figure? Yeah, right, right, right. The, the Bolton and Zana paper was really good about that. Every nearly every figure had its first sentence was like, "This is what I want you to learn from this figure." That's a great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ideally, we do a lot of what's the right word? Like, kind of interface with the author on that, but. We we can't kind of police everything about that kind of writing style. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're getting. I'm getting much more stern about colors. Like I typically ban rainbow color scales. <laughs> I um, make Ed Hawkins happy. Too. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, I check for red green color blindness issues. We always check to make sure that uncertainties are defined. Mm. If you have an error bar, like what does the error bar actually mean? For example, yeah. we're we're pushing now in terms of writing to get people to have um, data avail- data availability and code availability statements. Yes. Yeah. And I'm not. We don't have a company policy to mandate open code, and we can't we can't do that. But I. I'm pushing really hard um, in the writing to increase the transparency both of the code and of the data hmm. as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of journals are going that way. They want it to be reproducible. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. What's something you learned about um, science in general? <laughs> I, I guess it maybe isn't a new thing, but I think what I've learned about, about scientists is how just utterly passionate they are about, about science and how, from my perspective, the, the narrative in climate skeptical circles that climate scientists are in it for the money in some way, it's just utterly wrong. Yeah. And that scientists are in it because they're deeply passionate about hard questions that matter for society, at yeah. least in climate science. And that's that's really inspirational to come and see how, how just how pumped up people are about the, what they're doing. Yeah. That's honestly part of why I wanted to do this, like to start this podcast, yeah. because I, I got really tired of hearing that, that argument, you know, from denier circles about, oh, climate scientists are just in it for the money. I mean, one, what money, what money? <laughs> one, yeah, exactly. One, what money? And two, have you met these folks? <laughs> these folks are just interested in doing, you know, good work. They're not interested yeah. in, you know, making, making a lot of cash. It's just yeah, not, exactly. how, not how they're wired. Um, what well, was something you've learned about podcasting? You know, you, you have one, you have an archived podcast, a forecast pod. Yeah. And, you know, and I can, we can link to that as well when we do. Oh, great. Okay. Post, you know, yeah. Ah, I, I learned about podcasting. That it was a lot more uh, time consuming than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. know what your experience is like, <laughs> but between like the recording and the editing and the, just the web hosting, although you have, it sounds like faster ways of doing that. It, mm. it was about, eight hours per episode for me. Mm, okay. So yeah. it took a lot of time. Um, but what also surprised me about podcasting was that everybody has a messed up story to mm. some degree or the other. Everyone, almost everyone got into their field of science by accident. Oh yeah. Interaction with one particular influential person or happenstance encounter with one paper or book or idea. Mm. Most people I talked to did not, did not have a 
predefined desired career trajectory. Yeah, that's Many of them didn't want to go into academia or didn't think they were going to. Came from completely non-academic backgrounds, and <laughs> everyone's had some kind of challenge along the way, either mm. relationships or finances or health or yeah, whatever it might be, having to sure. leave the country, things like that. I talked to people who had to leave Chile because of the, the revolutions in Chile and things like that. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that... <clears throat> In particular, it's good for younger scientists to hear that because I think that they see people, for example, at Bass who are senior scientists, and it can, it, once you're in it in that role, it can look like you were always in it in that role. <laughs> but the reality, like everyone had a messed up background. Yeah, this person emerged fully formed as a scientist, <laughs> like Athena. <you know. laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, I really agree with that. And um, you know, the, the kind of web profiles and CVs that we construct can look really intimidating. Right. You know. They, they, they usually don't feel intimidating to us, the people who write them, because we know the stories behind them. And, you know, you list your masters and you're like, you know, well, yeah, but that didn't really go how I wanted it to go. But it, it, on your CV, it just looks, yeah. you know, it, look, it, it forms this wall. Um, I like this idea of an anti-CV where you also show all the stuff you didn't get and all the stuff that, that didn't work out. All of your rejections. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, when, I got, when I got to Nature, I was able to go and read the, the notes on my own rejects at Nature. Oh, snap. <laughs> really? <laughs> and now, having done the job for a while, I go back and think about it, and it's like, I really had no idea what Nature publishes and how inappropriate my papers were for the job. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> well, now well, I know. Well, hopefully your notes were uh, kind <laughs> Kind of that would be like yeah, things like uh, this is a fine but routine example of yet another impact of climate change and agriculture. <laughs> like, <laughs> yet another, like yes, yes, we know. <laughs> we don't need to. <laughs> I try to write really professional notes because you know you you have to imagine that in some world they might all become public. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Or you know somebody might get a job and look <laughs> look them up. You might still be working there. Well, <laughs> um, I just grabbed this off your Twitter bio, but what's Something you learned about baking? <laughs> about baking, I, I learned that I, mean, I have a real passion for baking um, sourdough bread, which is mm. the sort of slowly leavened thing that can take a couple of three days to get get through. Yeah. Um, I, I learned that nothing is hard about baking sourdough bread, but that everything matters. Mm. Okay, so every and, every step of the temperature and humidity and the like. You know. Sourdough is like a like an irritable baby, you know. Uh, it's really, really, really temperature sensitive. Hmm. So even like a few degrees difference in the room temperature or the dough temperature will have a just an insane effect on how the dough behaves. The activity of the the starter when you're making it is uh, hugely important. Hmm. So making good sourdough bread really only works well if you're doing it on a regular basis because otherwise your sour will have intermittent levels of activity no matter hmm. how you treat it. So you, you can always kind of bring it back to life, but it'll still be different than the last time you did it. Ah. So sourdough for intermittent bakers like me is like the very definition of irreproducible results. <laughs> so when you're eating it, you're like, this will never happen again. This particular... This you'll, particular you'll make like one look and be like, this is the best day. I'm done. I've got to figure it out. Yeah. And next time you're like, what the hell what happened? happened? <laughs> <laughs> no, I gotta, I gotta retire now. You can like, yeah, you, exactly. If you, if you make the perfect one, you're like, all right, I'm out. <laughs> I can't. I guess I also learned that baking <laughs> is a really great thing to do, just socially. I really like mm. doing it. I, I was talking with my son about alco about alcoholism. He's seven years old, 
And so we're getting into this, and he's like, well, why do people drink so much? I'm like, yeah, uh, you know, they have a party, and they might, they might be celebrating, they might kind of get carried away and drink too much alcohol, something like that. And he was thinking, he's like, um, you know, Daddy, if I wanted to celebrate, I would have cake. <laughs> and you're like, well, and if you had more cake and more cake and more cake, it would become a problem at some point. And, uh, yeah, he loves sweets, but he doesn't go crazy on them. He doesn't push for more sweets. It's kind of weird. Yeah, you know, I got it. Uh, my my son is uh, somehow good at that as well, and I don't, I, I can't take any credit for that. We were out uh-huh. like trick or treating, you know, getting candy, and you know, the he, he did not do the. The typical kid thing would just be to keep going and to have to be dragged home, right. basically. But he, like, you know, got a decent amount in oh his bucket, God. and he's Bye. like, I'm good. Let's go. I'm like, really? Okay, yeah, that's fine. We can go. <laughs> so he had just reached he, he got enough, and I, I thought that was a neat moment that, like, you yeah. know, he, he didn't just, you know, want to go for more and more and more. And that, Congratulations. Good, you know? <laughs> no, yeah, yeah to, to him. I can't take any credit. I can't take any credit for that. Uh, how are you feeling? Is there anything else you want to want to talk about i think that should wrap it up for me okay great Great. Uh, thanks michael thank you that was really good Uh, there you have it my conversation with michael white climate science editor for nature magazine you can find michael at mwclimatesci on twitter you can follow him there you can also go to the website forecastpod.org where you'll find back catalog the back catalog for michael's forecast podcast where he has long informal conversations with folks whose work intersects with climate much like this podcast Uh, you can also find he's written some nice uh, articles uh one of them is on suggest suggestions wow i can't talk uh suggestions on improving papers uh if you're intending to submit them you know to nature or whatever it's really just general writing advice about how to uh, really hone a paper and to tighten it up and to make it easier for the editors and the reviewers to do their job which is good hopefully you you can find that i'll post a link to it when i tweet this out so i'm really glad that we talked about uh, michael's pathway into science and his pathway into editing i thought that was a really interesting story and it gives us some sense of you know there are things to do outside of academia there's a whole other world out there that one could potentially get involved with and I think for a lot of folks in academia, it's nice to know that. So um, I'll just leave you and uh, talk to you later. Bye-bye.